Good morning, 502. I've just come down from my other congregation at Alder Road. Uh, good to be down here this morning. Next week, we are planning to get back into our series in Acts, which we did for most of last year with a few breaks. And uh, between next Sunday and up to uh, just before the Easter season, we'll be finishing off the book of Acts, God, God willing. Uh, this morning, I want to finish off what's been a three-part series we call Money, Sex, and Power, Why We Are Different. And if you are here for the first time today, if you've missed the other two, uh, it might be that your curiosity has peaked. I'd encourage you to listen to the other messages on our website because they really do hang together. These are three interconnected things uh, that we uh, think the Word of God tells us and are important to us. And uh, over the past couple of weeks, as I've been speaking, as I spoke about money first couple of weeks ago and then about complementarity, how men and women are to relate to one another last week, I've had a number of people say to me, oh, you're brave for uh, tackling these subjects, and um, that's very nice. I'd rather be commended for being courageous and being condemned for being cowardly, but it's not really a question of, of bravery. Uh, we believe here at Gateway Church that the Word of God is true and that these things are very good news, and the only reason why it might seem a little bit brave to talk about these things is because we are different. The way that we think as followers of Jesus often and perhaps increasingly can seem to be at variance with how the rest of the world thinks and goes along, but we believe that what we have, the message from God, is really good news, and that the thing that Bournemouth and Paul need to hear is this good news about Jesus Christ and the things that flow out from that. So if we can be a people, if we at Gateway Church can be a people who understand how to handle our money, who are truly generous because we know how generous has been God has been to us, and if we can be a people who, as men and women, made in the image of God together made to reflect him and know him together, if we can uh, not do what some would do and say, well, there's no distinctions at all between men and women, but if we can also not do what often happens and see there's some kind of antagonism between men and women, but if we can actually work fruitfully and fully together as men and women, as the Bible describes, and if we understand, appreciate, and receive godly authority in the way that God gives it to us, those things are really good news. They're good news for us, and I believe they're good news for Bournemouth and Paul as well. So it might be that you're here for the first time, it might be that you're not a follower of Jesus, that some of the stuff I say today might sound really odd. Uh, it's a good opportunity for you to hear something of what, how we try and do church life. I'd encourage you just to kind of listen in, welcome to disagree with things, uh, questions to be provoked, uh, but hopefully I can show you something of what the Word of God says about some of this stuff. So today's theme is about power or about authority. And uh, this is a tricky subject because we all know that power corrupts. The old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And if there's going to be authority that has worked out in some way in the church, that needs to be an authority which is good rather than destructive because we all know that authority can quickly become something which is, which is destructive. It can very easily become dysfunctional. And that happens at every level. That happens at the international level where the authority of those in power becomes dysfunctional and becomes very destructive to people's lives. We can see that in all kinds of contexts around the world today. Uh, thinking this past week, especially about my friends in Zimbabwe, as things go from bad to worse there again, just a classic example of dysfunctional power ending up in the shipwreck of so many lives. It also works out at the personal level. If you live in a family which is dysfunctional because... 
things have gone wrong with mum and dad and how they exercise authority in the family. Well, that, that's a corruption of power. That's a corruption of authority. It can make family life a very dangerous, threatening place to be. And so we don't want anything to do with that kind of destructive, controlling, dysfunctional leadership style. We want something which is good, and authority can be good. Authority can... Right authority can speak things into being which weren't previously happening in a way which is good. Just before Christmas, it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 8 mission when the first people went in a spacecraft and went around the moon and saw the dark side of the moon for the first time. How did that all happen? It happened because President Kennedy stood up and said, we are going to go to the moon. There was an authority with which he spoke which caused something to happen. It's a good use of authority. Sometimes authority can be good because it stops things that need to be stopped. Probably the prime example of that in our kind of British national consciousness is the Second World War and Churchill saying, it's going to stop. We are going to stop the advance of the Nazis. That's a good use of authority. And then there's also the experience which many of us would have had of good authority providing a sense of security. If rather than a dysfunctional family, you've been blessed by growing up and living in a family which is functional, which is good. You'll have experienced the good uh, authority that is provided by the security of a mum and dad who, yeah, they're in charge, but they love you and they care for you and want the best for you. And that's actually a very freeing and a liberating thing. And so if we're going to function well as a church together, if we're going to demonstrate to Bournemouth and Paul what it is to be followers of Christ and how good that is, we need to get this one right. And that means that we need to overcome what is described as our hermeneutic of suspicion. A hermeneutic is how you interpret and apply things. And it's said about the day in which we live, in which we live, that we have a hermeneutic of suspicion, that if anybody or anything claims to have authority, we are immediately suspicious, we're immediately skeptical, we immediately uh, resist and push against it. And that's very defining of our 21st century culture in the West. But it's not a new thing. Right back at the beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the serpent deceived the first man and first woman. God had told them not to do something, and the serpent comes to them and says, did God really say? That right at the beginning of the story, there's this sense of suspicion, of skepticism about authority, which is planted in the hearts of the first man and woman. And ever since, we have reaped the consequences of that. So how can we... In the church, how can we function in a way where there is authority which is good rather than destructive, and in a way where we're not just suspicious, but where we know the benefits of living under a godly authority? Let's get into it. We're going to be using 1 Timothy, which we've been using, looking at these three weeks. It's a letter which, more than any other in the Bible, explains to us how a local church should function. A letter written by Paul to his friend Timothy in a city called Ephesus. And we're going to start in verse 17 of chapter 1. Paul says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yes, what a great verse. The source of authority in the church is God's. We need to remember whose church this is. This church is not my church it's not your church. In the end, it's God's church. It's his. He is the king. And Paul highlights some of the characteristics and qualities of 
this king. He says that he is king eternal. That means he's unlike any other ruler. Every other ruler has a term of office which comes to an end, either because they lose an election or because they get ousted in a coup or some other kind of power struggle or they die. Every other ruler has a limited term of rule, but God's rule is eternal, and that is good news. He says that he is immortal. God is unlike everything else in the world because everything else in the world is subject to decay and death and change. And God alone is unchanging. He is immortal. And he says that God is invisible. That means that God is unlike anything else and that God is spirit. He's not created. He's not created matter. Everything else in the universe is created and was created by God. He is the only God. His position is unique and unassailable. There are many other people, many other things, powers who would claim to be God's but there's only one true God. He's the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. And the church is his. And that makes God the ultimate and final authority here. And it means that we as a little local congregation here in Paul, we need to try and recognize and work out what it means to know God as our king. And that also means that the church is often a place of spiritual battle. It can be a place of spiritual conflict. Because we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, who does not like the fact that God is king and does not want that to be known and received and enjoyed amongst God's people. And so local churches can often be places of real spiritual conflict because we have an enemy who wants to disrupt that, who wants to sow discord and bitterness and fighting and wants leaders to fail and mess up and become dysfunctional. That's what, and we have an enemy who wants to do that. And so the church is a place of spiritual conflict. We need to be alert to that. It's part of why this is an important subject to talk about. It also means that the church should be very different from any other organization in the world. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says that we are God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're the household of God. What does that mean? You might think it just means we're the home, the house of God. The, uh, the trouble is that our kind of sense of what a home, what a house is, is rather different from what is meant here by household because of the way that we live, because of our culture, because of how our society is structured. It's very often our homes, our houses are places which we kind of retreat to to recover from being out in the world most of the time. You go out to work, you work a long day, you come home and you kind of plug in, stick the telly on, you kind of just recover for a few hours before going back out into the world. And so the, the home is kind of a, 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 a docking station or a bit of an emergency room where we come back to get some needed rest before going back out to do the stuff that we, is really important and, and we're called to do. Now, the what Paul means when he talks about a household here is very different. It's much more dynamic that a household, as Paul's thinking of it, a household as it would have been in the ancient worlds, would be a place, yes, where there's a biological family living together, but there would have been more than just mum and dad and kids. There would have been other people who would have been part of that household, who would have lived and worked in the household. And so there would have been a whole kind of dynamic economy that the family wouldn't have gone out to do the important stuff. The important stuff happened in the household. That's where they made their money. That's where they lived. That's how they worked. That's where they traded. The whole stuff happened in the household. 
And so we are called to be God's household. This is where the stuff happens, family together. The Bible gives us a vision of what it means to know the house of God. The house of God is where God dwells. God is not contained by walls. God lives amongst his people. He chooses to dwell with his people. In the Old Testament, that was represented by the temple in Jerusalem, which was the place where God's presence was. And if you wanted to know the presence of God, you would go to the temple to meet with God. Now, in the age of the spirits, those of us who've come in faith to Jesus are living stones, filled with the Spirit of God, being built into a spiritual house. God dwells amongst us. So when we gather together like we are now, God is here with us. God fills this place, not because of the walls, not because of the sanctity of the building, but because of us, him indwelling us by his Spirit. And Paul says that this household, the church, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. That means that the church is meant to be load-bearing, foundation which is strong, beams in place which can carry some weight, because this is a place where truth is to be found, because the church knows and proclaims God who is king. And that means that the church, means that local churches like this one are different from anything else. The source of our authority is different. This is God's house ruled by God. So, practically then, how are we to do things here at Gateway Church? We're to see that authority is given by God. Look at the way that Paul starts this letter to his friend Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God. Paul didn't choose the ministry he had. He didn't choose to be an apostle. He was commanded by God to do it. It was a ministry that was given to him by God. And any authority in the church needs to have evidence of God's commands upon it. It's not just like a human management appointment. And when we think about what that authority looks like then, what kind of shape is it meant to take? Well, look at how Paul describes the God who commanded him. I was commanded by God, God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope. What is God like? He's the one who saves us, and he's the one who fills us with hope. Now that's good news. And that means that if leadership in the church is appointed at the command of God, that means that leadership in the church should help people experience God as Savior and as hope. That's good. And then look what he says next. He says, To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Timothy, my son. The relationship that Paul and Timothy has is not one of boss and worker, not of master and servant. It's a family relationship, father and son. And that's because we get called into relationship with God and then called into relationship with one another. We're going to break bread in a few minutes. That's our great sign, our symbol, our recognition of that as the people of God, that we are joined together in Christ, joined together to one another. And so leadership in the church needs to help people experience that as well. Leadership in the church is meant to help us understand we're family, we're brothers and sisters together. And throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul 
keeps toggling backwards and forwards between the human family and the family of the church. He uses one to illustrate the other again and again. The human family is like this, so the church should be like that, and the church is like this, so this is how your family should be organized. Because the model for the church is family. It's mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, functioning together under the grace of God. An issue for us is that, sadly, so many people come from families which are not life-giving, but which are dysfunctional. And if you come from a family where your only experience of authority was that your dad was abusive, your mother was controlling, then it's very hard to come into church life and understand what family life is meant to look like. And we need to help one another learn and understand what that is meant to look like. And what is it meant to look like? Well, it's meant to look like this. Next part of the verse. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord's leadership in the church is meant to help people experience the grace of God and the mercy of God and the peace of God. So if authority in the church isn't producing a sense of family with a real sense of grace and mercy and peace, then something is wrong. If there isn't a sense of being mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters together, something's wrong because the church is meant to operate like a healthy, well-functioning family. Next thing, what is the role of the elders in this? I said last week that I wanted today to focus particularly on, on eldership and help people understand that. It's not something we talk about very often. It's actually quite difficult as an elder to stand up and talk about this is what elders are meant to do. It's a bit like Nathaniel not wanting to announce that we're having a day of prayer and fasting for him on Friday. It just feels a little bit orcs. But it's an important subject. Some of you might not even know who all the elders are, so let me just help you with that. So here at 502, Nathaniel and Gordon are the elders who are based in this congregation and help to father and lead this congregation. Our other congregation at Alder Road, Richard and Paul, are based there and focus on that. And uh, John and I uh, are elders and we move a little bit more between the congregations. Now all of us have a sense of responsibility for the whole church, Alder Road and Ashley Road together. But in terms of practical ministry function, uh, two of the guys are more focused all the road, two more focused here, and two of us who move around a little bit more. Now, what is the role of the elders? The New Testament pattern is that churches are meant to have elders. Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Titus 1.5, Titus is the next letter that comes after Paul's letter to Timothy. It's a very similar letter. Timothy is written to Paul's friend Timothy in Ephesus. Titus is written to Paul's friend Titus in Crete and dealing with the same kinds of issues. And Paul says to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. There's a New Testament pattern. Churches started, elders put in place. What do the elders do? Titus 1.7, since an overseer, there's three words the Bible uses interchangeably for elders, overseer, elder, pastor. They all mean the same thing, essentially. Um, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. Now, that's a tricky verse. Some of the verses we're looking at in Timothy are tricky. But for those of us who feel called to eldership, this is a tricky one. An elder must be blameless. 1 Timothy 3.5, an overseer takes care of God's church. Those two little verses give us a picture of what elders are meant to do. Manage, take care. It's a fatherly type role. Family is the model, and elders are meant to have a father-like role in the church. Also, essentially, 
In these verses and others, we see that it's always elders, it's always plural, that there's meant to be a team of elders serving churches. It's not just one dictator dad. It's not just one person, one man. It's not what you want. It's also not one super dad who's expected to be able to do everything because that's impossible. So there's always going to be a team of elders, always elders, plural, and it's elders like the dads in the church, working with the mothers in the church, working with the brothers and sisters in the church, that Jesus might be praised and there might be grace, mercy, and peace experienced by all. Now, how does that happen? There's a lot we could say this morning, but I particularly want to focus on the theme of teaching, which is something which runs throughout this letter to Timothy. What Paul describes here is how central and essential teaching is to the health of the church. Right at the beginning of the letter, after the introduction, he says this, verse 3, chapter 1. Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. It's a strong word. Paul says, I've been commanded by God to be an apostle. You, Timothy, are to command these people not to teach false doctrine. Why is that? That's because teaching always shapes the church. Churches like this are always shaped by the teaching they receive. And it's, you're either going to be shaped well or you're going to be shaped in a way which is not so good. And there need to be those in the church who are authorized and capable of teaching truth. That's what Timothy was to make happen in Ephesus. That's what we need here as well. Chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Those are amazing verses. Think about that. That's the gospel. Who are we coming to? What's happened for us? There's a mediator. There's one who's able to stand between us, human beings, and God, King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only true God. How? Because he's Jesus the man. He's one of us. And so he can relate to us and understand us and empathize with us. But Jesus is also God, which means he can represent God to us. He can be our mediator. He stands between us and God. And he gave himself as a ransom. He has dealt with our mess, our sin, We can come to God clean, pure, and this has been witnessed to. This has been proclaimed. This is good news. This is the gospel. For this purpose, I was appointed a herald or a preacher, an apostle, a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Now, the Apostle Paul's ministry was characterized by preaching. That's what Paul did. He would go into a town. He'd go to normally a synagogue first, and he would get up and he would start teaching about who Jesus is, the mediator, the ransom, the one who stands between us and God and calls us into relationship with God. Now, the Apostle Paul, clearly a unique person, unique ministry, unique gift, unique impact, But the model of teaching and preaching which he set out has been embedded in the church ever since. And we, Gateway Church, 502 Ashley Road, we are called to be a community that learns the truth of God and Jesus Christ through teaching of the word. We are called to be a pillar and foundation of the truth, which means we need to know the truth. It means we need to learn the truth. How do you learn? You learn through being taught the truth. And as soon as a church begins to drift away from this book, that's when the trouble begins. 
At that moment when churches begin to think other things are more important, other things are more essential, other things are more attractive, that's when the trouble starts. And so we need to be people who are committed to teaching. Which is why, next verse it says, chapter 3, verse 2, an overseer, an elder, must be able to teach. This is something that elders have to be able to do because it's so important. Now, there are different contexts for teaching. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We, members of the church, are meant to teach one another. We do that in all kinds of different contexts. If you're part of a community Bible reading group, there's a sense in which you're teaching one another as you share and apply Scripture day by day. In life groups, we're to teach one another as we study the Word and pray and worship. As we run different courses and training events, we're to teach one another. And Sundays, as we gather like this and we preach the Word, we're to teach And all members of the household are to be involved in teaching. It's like a human family. It's like a mum teaches her sons and her daughters, and big sister teaches little brother. And that's how it goes, and that's exactly how it's meant to work, because the church is a pillar and foundation of the truth, and we're we're to strengthen one another, and we do that by teaching one another. But there's also a particular responsibility on the elders on the dads in the church to do this, which is why he says an overseer must be able to teach. In the uh, following verses, Paul talks about qualifications for deacons, and teaching isn't a qualification to be a deacon. You don't have to be able to teach to be a deacon. You do have to be able to teach to be an elder. That's because elders are guardians of the flock, of the people of God. And part of the way in which we guard it is by teaching As we teach, we're meant to equip the people of God to discern what is right from what is wrong, to discern what is true from what is false. Now, there's one verse about teaching which I deliberately skipped over between chapters 2 and chapters 3 here in 1 Timothy. It's a verse we looked at last week, but I don't want to be accused of cowardice, so let's go back to it because... Perhaps in the light of what I've just said, it will make a little bit more sense. 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume or exercise authority over a man. Now, from what I've just said, you should see that that can't mean, it can't possibly mean that women can never teach because the Scripture is clear that all of us are called to teach one another. That's what Paul writes to the Colossians, Colossians 3.16. Teach one another in all wisdom. So, What Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 can't mean that women can never teach. But I think what Paul is saying in the context of the letter, things that are going on in Ephesus, is that there are times when teaching is meant to be done in the order of Adam before Eve. It's meant to be dad who has his moments to teach. That's appropriate in certain places at certain times that dad teaches first. And we'll explain a little bit more as we go through the rest of these scriptures, what I think Paul is saying here. Let's jump down to chapter 4, next reference to teaching. Chapter 4, verse 4. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. 
It's the word of God that enables us to discern what is right from what is wrong. Can we do this? Can we take this thing? Can we have this thing? How do we do this? You understand that by the word of God. And so teaching the word of God is central to the life of the church. Teaching the word is how we learn to accept the good things that God has given us with thanksgiving. Chapter 4, verse 11. Command, again a strong word, command and teach these things. Not negotiate about these things. No, command and teach these things. There's an authority about teaching. It's meant to be done with command. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Why does Paul say that? It's because Scripture itself is authoritative. This book has authority because it's God's Word, and God is the ultimate authority and the source of all our authority. It's God's Word to us, and so it needs to be properly and publicly taught. And when Paul says that, do this in public, that's different from doing it one-to-one. It's different from doing it in your CBR group. It's different from meeting in homes. There's a, a public place where Scripture is meant to be read, preached, taught. And for us, in our context, that's what we're doing now. Sunday morning, this gathering is the public space of the church. There's all other kinds of places, contexts in which we meet, in which we teach throughout the week, but Sunday mornings is our public space. And what I'm doing now, opening the Word and teaching it, is what defines what we're doing here this morning. The other things which we do are essential to our gathering singing and praying and breaking bread together. Those are essential elements of our worship. But without teaching of the Word, we'd quickly lose our focus in those other things and we'd end up traveling down roads that we shouldn't. It's teaching that defines this public space. And just very practically, most people, in my estimation and experience as a pastor, most people come to church two weeks out of three. And we normally try and keep our preaching to 35 minutes maybe been a little bit longer the last couple of weeks because of the, uh, of the hugeness of the topics. So most people in church life, and loads of you are serving out in kids and stuff as well, so over the course of a month, probably most members of this church only actually hear an hour, an hour and a half's worth of teaching. And the rest of the week, the rest of the month, we're out in the world being taught by the world, all its values and assumptions being poured into our minds and our hearts the whole time. And so the amount of Bible teaching we're exposed to is actually very small in comparison with everything else that goes on in our lives. And so just practically, we understand here that this is a particular task of the elders because we're called to be dads in the family. And so that's why almost every Sunday it's one of the elders who teaches in this space. This is the public space for us We as elders have a particular responsibility. Sometimes dad is meant to speak. And that sometimes, we believe, is this public space on a Sunday morning. Which leads to chapter 5 and verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well, and this is a verse which I can appreciate much more than some of the others, are worthy of double honor. Yes. (laughs) In your imagination especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. What Paul is saying there is that, look, preaching and teaching is so central to the way that the church is led. We do need to take it seriously. And that those who have this responsibility of preaching and teaching 
They need to take it seriously, and it needs to be recognized for how important it is. Now, not all leaders in the church, not even all the elders, are meant or called to do this public ministry. Look at what Paul says. It's especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Not all the elders preach and teach in the same public way. But those who do are to work hard at it because that is how the church is led. And my personal experience as the person who does public teaching more than anybody else at Gateway Church is that this is the most rewarding thing I do because it's a huge privilege to be able to spend hours in the week studying the Word of God, hearing what God is saying, writing it down, and then bringing it to you. That's a massive privilege. And because of the times when I see it having an impact on people's lives, when I see something happen in somebody's life, something happening in somebody's heart, something happening in somebody's actions because of the way that the Word of God preached on a Sunday has got into your hearts, that is an unbelievable privilege. To be honest, it can also at times be the most exasperating thing I do. Those days when I think I've got to preach on Sunday and I have nothing to say. And those times when I'm preaching and I think, man, I'm not sure anybody is actually hearing anything I'm saying. And those days when I go to a life group and they're talking about the word I preach on Sunday and I think, they really didn't hear anything I said. So it's a great reward, but it all can also be exasperating. It's important. It's what the word of God says. Preaching and teaching is important. Chapter 6, verse 2, these things, the things that Paul has set out in this letter, you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. Gets back to where he starts the letter. Chapter 1, verse 3, commands certain people not to teach false doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 2, these are the things you're to teach and insist on. If the church is going to head in the right direction, then biblically faithful teaching is non-negotiable. And we as elders, as fathers in the congregation, have a particular responsibility before God to see that that happens. And so we are committed to that. And then last thing is to see that the goal in this is not control, but love. If you come from a dysfunctional family, that's a terrible thing. To be in a family which is dysfunctional, where nothing works as it should, where everything's out of control. If you come from a place where, rather than security, there's been abuse. If you come from a place that, rather than kind of uh, mum and dad looking after the finance as well, so everybody's supplied for, instead... Dad's spending it all on booze and drugs and at the betting shop. If that's your experience, that's a painful place to come from. It does so much damage to so many people. And the reality is because church is a family, churches can also become dysfunctional just as families can. And it's been my sad experience to see that in different places at different times. And at times having to be involved in those churches trying to put things back into a godly function. Now, Paul makes provision for that in this letter. In this, in this letter in which he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, this is how you're to get the church in Ephesus working. You're to get things ordered. You're to put elders in place, and the elders are to do this, and people are to understand one another as brothers and sisters and treat each other in that way with respect and love and care and concern and grace and mercy and peace. He gives provision for what happens if things go wrong. 
chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Don't, don't just let kind of flimsy accusations come. You've got some cranky person in the church who doesn't like so-and-so, and they want to bring them down. Don't pay any attention to that. But if two or three witnesses are saying, look, this elder is acting in a way which is dysfunctional, which is doing harm to the body of God, what are you to do? Those elders you are to reprove before everyone. There's an authority in the congregation. There's an authority here. Those of you who are members of this church actually have an authority before God. We as elders have an authority given to us by God to lead you. But if John, if Nathaniel, if Gordon, if myself were to start behaving in a way which is dysfunctional and brought harm to the church, then we are to be publicly, not privately, publicly reproved before you under the authority of the congregation, under the authority of the household of God. That's a serious thing. That's a sober thing. Now, of course, we trust it won't ever come to that. And I'd urge you to pray for us to, that God would keep us from sin and temptation, that we would not become dysfunctional in our fathering of this church. Because if we do, that's destructive. It's my trust that won't happen. And actually, a place to finish with this, a place, much more hopeful place to look, is back near the beginning of the letter, verse 5 of chapter 1, when Paul's commanded Timothy to stop these false teachers from teaching anymore. He says, the goal of this command is what? It's love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not good to allow false teaching. It's not that we can always just, we'll just talk about everything and every view has equal validity. No, because actually that's not loving because false teaching does harm to the people of God. The command is Love And what Paul wants Timothy to happen in Ephesus is that that should be a church which is oriented towards the love of God, a church where there is purity of heart and good conscience and sincerity of faith, a church where there's love for God and love for one another and love for those who don't yet know Jesus. And I believe that God's call to us here at Gateway would be that we would be that kind of family as well, that we'd be a family that is living in and displaying the love of God. We're to be a family, the household of God, which is generous. That we should have the reputation as the most generous people in town because God has been so generous to us. We should be people who know how to work as men and women together, complementary relationships, not denying our difference, but also not in antagonism against one another, but functioning together as mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. And we should be a family where there's a godly authority which doesn't cause harm and dysfunction, but allows space for grace and mercy and peace to be known and experienced where truth is taught and the foundations get deeper and the pillars get stronger. You know, we are different in so many ways from the world around us. And that's not just because we're wanting to be different for different sake. It's because we've been called into the, night, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know the King of kings. We know the King eternal. And it gives a different shape to our lives, a different way of doing things, a different value system. And these things are good. They're the good news of the gospel. It's the good news that Bournemouth and Paul need to hear. It's the news of a saviour. 
It's the news of hope. It's the news of health. News of security. News of peace. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. You've made us different, and that is good. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand together and come back to worship?